As most of you know, I have had the privilege of making several trips to the land of Israel through the years. And regardless of how good your flight connections are, it takes a long time to get to Israel. One of the things that always strikes me when I am there, especially when spending time around the Sea of Galilee, is that the glorious news of salvation somehow got from there to me. I am a Gentile. I'm not Jewish. I wasn't born in the land of Israel, nor have I lived in the land of Israel. When the Lord Jesus came to this earth, He came to the land of Israel. He came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in the town of Nazareth. He ministered in the region of Galilee. He died in the city of Jerusalem, just outside the gate. He rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven from the Mount of Olives. All of those magnanimous events took place in the land of Israel and were focused primarily on the Jewish people. Jesus came into this world as a light for Israel. And His light was so bright that it has shined all the way over here to reach you and me. So here I stand today, a Gentile, as one of Jesus' sheep. It is true that Jesus came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But His intention never was to exclude those of us who are Gentiles. In fact, He centered His earthly ministry in the region of Galilee, which was a largely Gentile region of first century Israel. With that as background, let's turn together to Mark chapter 1 as we continue our series through this fast-moving gospel account written by Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I invite you to follow along as I read verses 14 through 20, which will form our text of consideration this morning. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. We read, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also who were in the boat, uh, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. One of the things that is important to keep in mind when you are reading the gospel accounts is that each of the gospel writers was selective in the material he included in his particular gospel record. What I mean is, they didn't include everything that could have been said about the life and ministry of Jesus. John 21-25 tells us, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
So the gospel writers were selective in the material they included in their gospel accounts. Each writer included the material that he felt was most important for his specific purpose in writing, and each writer left out material that did not serve his specific purposes. Of course, all of this was under the direction of the Holy Spirit who inspired the Word of God. But that doesn't change the fact that the gospel accounts are not exhaustive in their treatment of the life and ministry of Jesus. They are selective snapshots that leave out material that could have been included, and sometimes the material that is included is not in chronological order. For example, in the last message, we looked at the temptations of Jesus in verses 12 and 13 of this first chapter of Mark, but Mark doesn't give us near the detail as Matthew and Luke. Not only that, but it is interesting to note that in Luke's gospel, the second and third temptations are recorded in reverse order when compared to Matthew's account. That's no problem because neither Matthew nor Luke claim to record the temptations of Jesus in the order in which they took place. They simply record the fact that they did take place and they recorded them in the order that would bring out the specific aspects of Jesus' life that they were wanting to highlight in their gospel accounts. Now the reason why I am mentioning all of this is because it would be easy for us to assume that the verses we just read here, Mark 1, 14 through 20, it would be easy to assume that these verses are telling us about the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. After all, they are right here in the very first chapter of Mark's gospel. So it appears to us that this is the beginning. This is the starting point. This is not the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is at least a year into the ministry of Jesus and possibly even two years into the ministry of Jesus. Mark doesn't actually tell us about the early stages of Jesus' ministry. The only gospel writer who does is John. John chapters 1 through 4 tell us about the first year plus of Jesus' ministry. The first year of ministry involved, among other things, the initial contact of Jesus with the disciples, the ministry overlap with John the baptizer, the changing of water into wine, which was Jesus' first miracle, the first cleansing of the temple, the conversation with Nicodemus regarding the new birth, the conversation with the woman at the well, and the healing of the nobleman's son. All of those events were a part of the first year of Jesus' ministry, and they are described in the Gospel of John, chapters 1 through 4. So as we move into verses 14 and following of this first chapter of Mark, we should not assume, we should not assume that we are looking at the first stages of the ministry of Jesus. That is not the case. This is not Jesus bursting on the scene, if you will. This is at least a year into the ministry of Jesus, possibly even two years, or at least close to two years into the ministry of Jesus. By this time, Jesus has already ministered extensively in the land of Israel. He had already called his disciples to believe in him and to get to know him. 
That explains why in verses 16 through 20, when Jesus calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John to leave their nets, they immediately did so. They dropped their nets and followed him. Now think about this. If those men had never met Jesus and didn't know Jesus, then it wouldn't make sense that they would simply drop their nets and walk away from their family business. Who would do that? Would you do that? If you're at work one day and someone comes walking along and says, drop everything, come follow me, quit your job, and here we go. Who would do that? Peter and Andrew, James and John would not have. But they did know Jesus already by this time. They had been a disciple of Jesus for over a year. But here in verses 16 through 20, Jesus called them to leave their business, to follow him full time in preparation for their future ministry. So my point is, this is not the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, although you could say it was, in a sense, the beginning of his public ministry in Galilee. Mark picks up the story a year or so, a year plus, into the ministry of Jesus because Mark, in his gospel, wants to focus on and highlight the great Galilean ministry of our Lord. So with that as background, let's jump into this text that we have just read, beginning in verse 14. Mark tells us, coming off this abbreviated account of the temptations of Jesus, he tells us, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The John that is mentioned here in this verse, of course, is John the baptizer. He was imprisoned and later killed as a result of rebuking Herod Antipas for his immoral relationship with Herodias. Herod Antipas, this is the history, this is the background, Herod Antipas talked Herodias into leaving her husband, who happened to be his brother, he talked her into leaving her husband in order to marry him. John the Baptist was incensed that a ruler in Israel would do something that blatantly immoral, so he rebuked Herod Antipas severely and publicly. As a result, Herod Antipas arrested John and wanted to kill him. But he was afraid to do so since many of the people in the land regarded John as a prophet. So for political purposes, he just held him in prison instead of killing him. But eventually, Herodias, who was also furious at John for saying anything about their relationship, Herodias took an opportunity to have John killed when Herod Antipas made a foolish oath to give whatever the daughter of Herodias wanted as a result of a dance she performed at a banquet. Now, all of this is described over in chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel, and we'll eventually get there. But at this point, John had not been killed but he had been put into prison. When Jesus heard that, when Jesus heard that John had been in prison and that John was no longer free to be preparing the way, Jesus determined that it was time for him to move north to begin his public Galilean ministry. Mark lets us know that here in verse 14 by saying that this change in the ministry of Jesus was after John the baptizer had been put into prison. 
So that was the location of our Lord's preaching ministry for an extensive period of time. And the end of this verse begins to give us the content of his preaching ministry. Mark says Jesus was preaching the gospel. The word gospel, as you probably know, means good news. But what was the good news that Jesus was preaching? This verse says he was preaching the gospel or preaching the good news. What was he saying? It would be easy for us to assume that the gospel that Jesus was preaching is the same gospel we preach today, but that's not really accurate. Our gospel message is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again the third day to defeat sin, Satan, and death. That's the gospel we preach. But that's not the message Jesus preached. Think about it. He had not died yet or risen from the dead. So his message did not include those things. He wasn't preaching the same gospel we preach. He wasn't saying, I have died on the cross and risen from the dead, and here I stand. That had not happened. No, his gospel message, or his good news, was that he, the king, had finally arrived, as had been promised, and therefore the promised kingdom was right at the doorstep. The Messiah and his kingdom were promised throughout Hebrew Scripture, throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus came preaching the good news, I, the king, am here. This is what has been promised. So Jesus came preaching that gospel, but but there was something the people needed to do if they wanted the kingdom to be established. Verse 15 tells us that. Verse 15 says that Jesus was saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is what the people needed to do if they wanted the kingdom. They needed to repent. Jesus came offering the kingdom, the promised kingdom, to Israel if they would repent. John the baptizer had preached repentance throughout his ministry, And Jesus simply followed suit. John had instructed the people that they needed to repent to get their hearts ready for the Messiah. And Jesus told the people they needed to repent if they wanted the promised kingdom. Notice what he says here in this verse. He says, the time is fulfilled. In other words, Jesus was saying, here it is. It's been promised for hundreds of years. Now is the time for the kingdom. It is at hand because I am present. I am the one who can establish the kingdom. But you must meet the condition that you repent and believe. That's what Jesus was saying in his preaching ministry. We are told in the gospel accounts that Jesus went throughout all the region of Galilee, preaching in all the synagogues, and there were many scattered throughout Galilee. So in every synagogue, he came in and he preached the same message. He preached, the kingdom, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is drawn near, repent and believe the gospel. Notice that Jesus included the command to repent alongside of the command to believe. See that there in verse 15? This is the consistent message of the New Testament. Salvation comes to those who repent and believe. It's not an either or. Repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin. 
Genuine saving faith includes repentance as a part of it. In fact, the message of repentance is so central to the gospel, it is so foundational to the gospel, that Jesus instructed his own disciples to make sure that it was at the heart of their preaching and teaching ministry when he was gone. What passage am I referring to when I say that? In Luke 24, 46, and 47, Jesus told his disciples this, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That is, that is the message Jesus gave to his disciples. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name. That is what Jesus preached. That is what he instructed his disciples to preach. He set the example right here at the beginning of his great Galilean ministry. Jesus called on the people to repent and believe in the gospel. So that was Jesus' public ministry, if you will. That's what Jesus did throughout Galilee. Think about, I think there were approximately 240 or 204 cities and villages scattered throughout the Galilee region. And Jesus went to each one of these, publicly proclaiming this message of repent and believe. That was his public ministry. But Mark also wants to tell us about his private ministry. And so, Jesus not only preached a public message, he not only ministered to the masses, he also called and trained disciples. And that's the next thing that Mark tells us about this Galilean ministry of Jesus. He says in verse 16, And as he, the he of course is Jesus, as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Just a little quick side note here. It may be confusing to some if you're not familiar with the terminology to hear Mark referring to the Sea of Galilee as a sea when the fact is it's a freshwater lake. The reason for this is because in Hebrew, the Jewish mindset, any body of water is called yam, Y-A-M, which means sea. Even a little puddle, a mud puddle along the side of the road is called yam in Hebrew. It's just a body of water. It's to distinguish it from flowing water in a river. So anything, even a little bird bath sitting out in your yard is called yam or sea. So the Sea of Galilee is called Sea of Galilee, but it's not a sea. It's not an ocean. It's a freshwater lake. So here Mark tells us that Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, let me reiterate what I said a moment ago. This is not right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is not Jesus bursting on the scene, introducing himself to Peter and Andrew. This is at least a year into the ministry of Jesus, maybe even pushing two, a year and a half or so. By this time, Jesus had already ministered extensively in the land of Israel. He had already called his disciples to believe in him, to get to know him. So they did know him. They did believe in him. They were learning about him. And this helps explain why when Jesus calls these men to leave their nets, they did so immediately. There was no hesitation. Again, I stress, if these men had never met Jesus 
and didn't know Jesus, it would not make sense that they would simply drop their nets, walk away from their family business, walk away from their employment. They did know Jesus. They already knew him. They had been his disciples for well over a year. But here in verses 16 through 20, Jesus called them to leave their business, to follow him full time in preparation for their future ministry. This was going to be on-the-job training from this point forward. Prior to this, Jesus had spent time with them. He had taught them informally, formally, etc. But now it's full-time, on-the-job training. Here in this text, Mark doesn't mention all the 12 disciples, but he does so in chapter 6, as we'll see a little bit later down the road. So here Jesus begins the task of calling his disciples, training his disciples, teaching them, molding them, instructing them, forming them, etc. How did he do it? As you look at how Jesus worked with his men, you can see four phases of the disciples' calling. Four stages. The the first phase of their calling was the call to salvation. The call to believe in him. For example, in John 1, 35 through 51, Jesus called Andrew, Philip, Peter, and Nathaniel to salvation. The Gospels do not record the salvation of all the disciples, but we are given a sampling in John chapter 1. In that phase, they went with Jesus for a little while. They spent some time with him, but then they returned to their business, their their secular employment, whatever it was. Phase 1 was their call to salvation. Phase two was what you could say, uh, you could phrase as their call to service, which is what we have recorded for us here in verses 16 through 20. Again, it's just a sampling. It's not a mention of all of the 12. We know that Matthew, for example, was a tax collector, and he was called once while sitting at his tax office. That's Matthew chapter 10. But here, Jesus calls these disciples to leave their nets leave their secular employment to follow him exclusively. This is phase two of their calling, their call to service. Phase three of their calling was their call to short-term mission. Jesus called them together on one occasion to send them out on a short-term mission. Mark 6, 7 tells us that they were sent out two by two. At that stage, they weren't ready to go out alone. In that phase, the Lord stuck closely with them like a a mother eagle watches her eaglets. Then they came back for more training. Phase four of their calling is their call to be sent. That is recorded in John 20, 21, where Jesus said, As the Father sent me, so send I you. In Acts 2, Jesus returned to heaven, and he sent the apostles to be his representatives here on earth. So those were the four phases of their calling. Salvation, service, short-term mission, and sending. But why did Jesus choose these 12 men that we are somewhat familiar with? Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, etc. Why these 12? Mark 3.13 says, he called, here's the exact quote, those whom he himself wanted. That was his basis. It was his choice. He didn't ask for a show of hands. He didn't go to the synagogues and say, 
Who wants to be one of my 12 disciples? No, it was his choice, his own sovereign choice. He didn't ask for volunteers. In John 15, 16, Jesus told them this when he said, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. They were chosen sovereignly. But they were also chosen prayerfully. Look at the next gospel, the gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Turn over to the next gospel record, the gospel of Luke, chapter 6. And notice what Luke says about this choosing. Luke 6, verse 12. It says, Now it came to pass in those days that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, And he continued all night in prayer to God. Well, what was he praying about? Well, we can't say with absolute certainty, but the next verse gives us a clue as to what he may have been praying about all night. Because the very next verse says, And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. Now, this would be a much larger group. This would be all those who were disciples of his, believers, followers of him. He called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. And then we're given a list in verses 14, 15, and 16 of those 12. Jesus chose the 12 out of the larger group after a night spent in prayer, and he chose those 12 to be with him so he could train them and mold them. The Lord centered in on these 12 men for the purpose of training them, shaping them, and forming them. He gave them on-the-job training as they walked with Him, heard Him speak, heard Him pray, watched Him act, felt His heartbeat. They were the ones chosen by our Lord to be trained to be His apostles to represent Him. And you know what? It wasn't an easy job to train the twelve. If you look at it in the Gospels, it was not easy. But that gives us hope that God can also use us. Basically, the Lord had to overcome four problems in the lives of His men. If you scour the Gospel accounts, you get this picture that there were four problems in their lives that He had to overcome. Number one, a lack of spiritual perception. A lack of spiritual perception. The disciples had a problem. They couldn't understand spiritual truth. They were so focused on the kingdom... That when Jesus started teaching them about a mystery form of the kingdom and what, the, what was going to be involved in his death and resurrection, they just didn't get it. They didn't grasp what the Lord said. And it's almost humorous to read in the Gospels that whenever the Lord asked them, he would say something and say, now do you understand? They would say, oh yes, Lord, we understand. And they didn't. They were so thick that they didn't realize that they didn't understand. They didn't understand that they didn't understand. How, how did the Lord deal with this problem? He dealt with it by constantly instructing them over and over again. He taught them all the time, formally, informally. Even the night before his death, he took the time to teach them all the things recorded in the uproom discourse of John 13, 14, 15, 16. Even after the resurrection, Jesus taught his men. For his post-resurrection ministry, Acts 1 tells us, he spent these days uh, continuing to instruct his disciples before the ascension. So Jesus overcame their lack of spiritual perception by constantly instructing them. But there was a second problem that the disciples had. It's obvious as you read the gospel accounts. 
And that was the issue of pride. Pride was a problem the disciples struggled with like all of us. So how did Jesus deal with their pride? He dealt with their pride by being an example of humility. Jesus dealt with their pride by being an example of humility and servanthood. They saw it in him. They watched him. John 13 is a classic example. The night before Jesus died, he left this vivid illustration of humility with his disciples when he washed their feet. So he dealt with their pride by being an example of humility and servanthood. There was a third problem the disciples had, and that was the problem of unbelief or lack of faith. One of the most frequent statements Jesus says in the Gospels is the statement, O you of little faith. He said that in Matthew 6.30, Matthew 8.26, Matthew 14.31, Matthew 16.8, just a few examples. In fact, in Mark 4.40, Jesus said to them, How is it that you have no faith? That's a remarkable statement. How is it that you have no faith? And Jesus wasn't referring there to their uh, lack of salvation faith, that they didn't believe Him, but they just didn't trust Him like they should have trusted Him. They didn't believe like they should have. How did Jesus overcome their unbelief or their lack of faith? Interestingly, He did so by performing miracles. Jesus performed miracles to strengthen the faith of the disciples, to bolster their faith, to strengthen their trust in Him by demonstrating His power. That's how Jesus dealt with their problem of doubt. And then a fourth problem Jesus had to overcome in the disciples was, uh, for lack of a better expression, one I will call a lack of commitment. A lack of commitment. Do you remember the night before Jesus' death, he told his men that they would forsake him? And they all, all of them, to a man, said, No way, no way, we'll stick with you, Lord. We would never, we would never forsake you. In fact, it's interesting to make this little comparison from early on in the ministry of Jesus to right there at the end. Luke 5.11 says this, They forsook all and followed him. Mark 14.50 says, They all forsook him and fled. What a contrast. They forsook all and followed him at the beginning, but at the end they all forsook him and fled. At one point they forsook all and followed him, but near the end they all forsook him and fled. They had a lack of commitment. How did Jesus overcome this problem? This is really an interesting one. He overcame it by prayer. Jesus prayed for his men, and specifically, he prayed about their lack of commitment. Let me show you just one example. You're in Luke's gospel still. Look at chapter 22. 22, <clears throat> verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Of course, Simon, we know usually better as Peter. Simon, Peter. Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Jesus says, Peter, Satan wants you. He wants to tear you up. He wants to break you down. He wants you to turn away. 
it's, it's an issue of a lack of commitment. Satan wants to chip away at your commitment so you'll just bail, so you'll turn away. But notice the next, very next statement. Verse 32, Jesus says, But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Jesus dealt with their lack of commitment by praying for his men. In John 15, Jesus told his disciples that they would be persecuted, hated, and killed. Not a very pleasant message to deliver. In John 16, Jesus told his disciples they would be persecuted, hated, and killed. Not a very pleasant message to hear. And then in John 17, Jesus prays for them. So Jesus overcame their lack of spiritual perception by instructing them. He overcame their pride by being a living illustration of humility. He overcame their unbelief, their doubts by performing miracles, and He overcame their lack of commitment for, by praying for them because He wanted to equip them. He wanted to shape them. He wanted to prepare them. And you know something? The Lord accomplished the project. Acts 4.13 says, When the Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Do you know how the Sanhedrin knew that? Do you know how they knew that Peter and John had been with Jesus? Because they were acting just like Jesus. They did the same things Jesus did. They said the same things Jesus said. They loved the same way Jesus loved. That's why the disciples were eventually called Christians, which means little Christs. That's not a title they took upon themselves. They didn't call themselves that. That was a title that was given to them by others. As people watched how the disciples lived and the early church lived, they saw people that were very much like Jesus. So the early disciples were called Christians. And this was our Lord's goal all along. Because in Luke 6.40, he said this, A pupil is not above his teacher. After he has been fully trained, he will be like his teacher. Graduation day was John 15, when Jesus said to his disciples, No longer do I call you slaves. You are my friends. That, that was the ultimate goal that Jesus had in mind as he chose his 12 disciples. Mark just gives us a sampling, whereas some of the other gospel writers fill in the other details. Now back to Mark chapter 1 as we begin winding down. Back to our text there in Mark 1. So we read in verse 16 that as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Mark makes sure to, to tell about the call of Simon Peter because he was the leader of the twelve, according to Matthew 10.2. Jesus was their teacher. He was their master. He was their Lord. But Simon Peter was the in-house leader. He was the leader among the, the, the peers. Andrew, on the other hand, although he was Peter's brother, seems to have been a quiet, more reserved kind of man. Then you have the next two brothers mentioned in the following verses. Verse 19. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat, mending their nets. 
And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. This is the next two that Mark mentions simply as examples or samples of what Jesus did privately. Public ministry, preaching. Private ministry, the disciples. Here he mentions James and John. It's interesting to realize that in the four Gospels, James is never mentioned apart from his brother John. Never. It's also interesting to note that James, when he is mentioned with John, is always listed first. Always, always. It is always James and John. James, never John and James. This may indicate that James was the older of the two, or, as in the case of Peter and Andrew, it may indicate that James was the most dominant of the two in personality. Jesus helps us characterize both James and John when in Mark 3.17 we are told that both James and John were nicknamed Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. So evidently, James and John were thunderous men. We do know from Acts chapter 12 that when Herod Agrippa I wanted to stifle the church, the first person he went after, interestingly, was James. You would think it would be Peter, right? Go for the leader. Go for Peter. But Herod went for James. In fact, the way the text reads there in Acts 12, it seems like Herod didn't even think about doing anything to Peter until he saw that it pleased the Jews that he had beheaded James. Then he thought, oh, okay, then I'll get some more brownie points with the Jewish population. I'll go for Peter. But James was first. The first one targeted by Herod Agrippa I. The Lord Jesus took the zeal of James, the energy of James, and molded him into a powerful vessel and instrument so powerful that he was the first target of of martyrdom. What about his brother John? Well, remember, both James and John were nicknamed Boanerges. So John started out just like James. But it seems that through the years he didn't stay that way. Jesus transformed him into the apostle of love. This brings out an interesting point about the disciples, and that is the fact that there were extreme, I mean extreme contrasts in temperament and personality and perspective among the twelve. For example, consider the difference between Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Matthew was a tax collector who worked for the Roman government, Simon the Zealot was a zealot whose goal was to overthrow the Roman government and to kill any Jew who joined in with him. Prior to coming to Jesus, if Simon the Zealot had met Matthew alone somewhere, he would have stuck a dagger in his stomach. Jesus calls both of them to be his disciples. Consider the differences between Peter and John. Peter was a man of action. He was impulsive, eager. John became quiet and contemplative. He was a thinker. Can you imagine Peter and John working together as they did in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts? I'm sure God taught them some neat lessons as they worked together. With all these kinds of differences, the Lord chose to put these men together. And you know what his desire was? Turn with me to John 17 for our conclusion this morning. The fourth gospel record, John chapter 17. This is our Lord's prayer for His disciples. 
John 17, the night before his death, he prayed for them. And with what I was just saying in mind, notice what he prayed. It's no accident that this was his prayer. Verse 11, he says, uh, verse 11, or he says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Jesus knew the potential there for disharmony and division with all their differences in personality and outlook. So he says, Father, I pray that they stay one, unified. Now, it would be easy for us to say, wow, isn't that great how the Lord desired and prayed for unity among his men? Well, let's not leave it at arm's distance. Skip down just a few verses to verse 20. Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. We have believed through the word of the apostles as recorded in Scripture. What's Jesus' prayer for us? Verse 21, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, and that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus not only prayed for his disciples to be one, he prayed for us to be one. You know, there's hardly, I, I don't think this would be an overstatement, there's hardly a week that goes by, certainly not a month that goes by, that I don't hear of little stirrings of disunity in our church. That shouldn't, shouldn't be shocking. It's because that's the potential that's always present. It's just always there. Jesus knew that. There's always the potential for disunity, disharmony, people murmuring about this, complaining about that, and, and, and a lack of oneness. It's always, always a potential threat to the church. Jesus, in his immense wisdom, knew that. So he prayed for oneness. For his disciples, he prayed for oneness for us. And he says to us here in these verses that our oneness may be our greatest message that the Father sent the Son. It may be more powerful than any sermon we could ever preach, more powerful than any music we could ever present, more powerful than any type of presentation is our oneness. That's how important it is to Jesus. And that's how important it should be to us. Let's bow together as we close. Father, as we take this time to reflect on how our Lord ministered publicly in Galilee, preaching the gospel, telling people to repent and believe, and as we see how he ministered privately with the twelve training them and equipping them. What a, what a fascinating picture of how our Lord worked, publicly and privately, to the masses, to his disciples. And as we see his ministry unfold in that manner, and as we see these glimpses, it's just, it's, it's just as amazing for us to contemplate the, the plan, the purpose that he had, and how he, he stuck to it and carried it out, knowing exactly what you wanted him, wanted him to do. And as we think about that, Father, our prayer is that we would live our lives in the same manner 
maybe not doing exactly the same things Jesus did in the same way, but that we would live out our lives according to your purposes. That whatever you have for us to do, that we would do it. And Father, in light of that desire on our part and that request, we pray specifically about what we've seen in closing here in John 17. The importance of unity, the importance of oneness. Remind us of how important this is to you, Father, to your Son, the Lord Jesus. How fragile it is. How, how often it is, it is uh, in jeopardy. And warn us when we might be doing something or saying something that would jeopardize that unity, that oneness that you desire for us. And then in closing, Father, we want to pray for anyone who's here with us this morning who doesn't know you as Father and your Son as Lord and Savior. We do pray that something that was said, something that was sung, just some aspect of the service would be used by you to touch their hearts and lives, that they would open their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ today, to believe in Him, to embrace Him, to begin following Him, For we pray these things together in His matchless name. Amen.